For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan Gibbs. I am a deacon here at Covenant Fellowship Church and also a pastoral intern. Um, it's great to be back with you all. It's my wife Leah and I were um, gone in the, in the States over Christmas to be uh, with my family and also to be with um, their church there, Nooksack Valley Reformed Church. Um, I had the privilege of preaching there last Sunday um, and I bring greetings from them to you. Um, they were blessed to hear about um, what is happening with this church and the ministry uh, here in Germany. Um, on this Sunday, uh, even though Christmas is in the rearview mirror and the holiday season is over, I wanted to take us back to the story of Jesus as a baby one more time. But today, we will look at a story that is often overlooked when we think about Jesus' incarnation and infancy, a part of the story that you never see in a nativity play, the presentation of the infant Jesus at the temple. In this passage today, uh, we will see how Jesus, even as a baby, began to fulfill the types and shadows of the Old Testament and how Simeon, an elderly, faithful man, recognized Jesus as the Messiah for whom he had been waiting. Um, our passage today is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. Let's read that together. Again, that's Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that we can see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, within its pages. That we can see how already as a baby he was fulfilling prophecy, that he was um, recognized as the Messiah that, that you have sent. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word today, that you would use it um, to work powerfully in our hearts. Lord, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is, not as we imagine him to be, not as we, our, our flesh hoped for him to be, but as he really is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon today will be divided up into three main points. Firstly, Jesus the firstborn. Secondly, Simeon's sight. And thirdly, Simeon's prophecy. It's going to be Jesus the firstborn, Simeon's sight, and Simeon's prophecy. At the beginning of this passage, in verses 22 through 34, we see Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus from Bethlehem, where all the pageantry of angels and shepherds that we've been hearing about over the past weeks took place just 40 days before for the purification and consecration according to the law of Moses. That's why they were bringing him. Mary and Joseph, like most Jews of their day, and very much in contrast to the Jews of the Old Testament that we read about, they followed the law religiously. They took it seriously, and they followed its requirements, even when it required them to undertake long journeys and expend significant resources. As required in the law, they had circumcised Jesus on the eighth day, And now, 32 days later, they brought him to fulfill the law written in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Joseph and Mary's obedience to the law prefigured Jesus' own obedience to the law. As Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 5 verse 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. But if it is true that not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished, then why do we no longer, as the people of God, perform this special consecration of the firstborn via animal sacrifice? I mean, the very idea to us is absurd. The answer is that the ceremonial sacrificial laws, such as this one, were accomplished and fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were types and shadows that pointed forward to the Messiah who was to come. 
We can see this with regards to the consecration of the firstborn, specifically when we look at the explanation that is given for that law in Exodus chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. What does this law signify? It signifies God's salvation of his people from slavery through the sacrifice of the firstborn. How did God save us from our slavery to sin? Through the sacrifice of his firstborn son. The consecration and sacrifice served to call the people of God to remember, as they were so prone to forget, that their God had saved them from their helpless subjection to the cruel slave masters of Egypt, not of their own doing, but only of his doing. It served to remind them of the huge cost that the Egyptians, the enemies of God and the oppressors of his people paid, the loss of their firstborn sons. And it served to remind them of how they themselves avoided paying that same cost through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The people of God, as they sacrificed a lamb in place of their firstborn sons, or in Joseph and Mary's case, two turtle doves because they were too poor to afford a lamb, should also have been looking forward in hope to the time that God would save them from their sins through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, his only son and to place their faith and their trust in that promise. We, as the New Testament people of God, have the enormous privilege to be able to see the fulfillment of this promise in the Gospels and its explanation in the Epistles, that Jesus Christ was the firstborn sacrifice. As we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. How can we apply this to our lives? Well, we can certainly take this and know that we no longer need to sacrifice a lamb or turtle doves 
when we have our first child. We can also look at it and, and we should look at it and be in wonder and be in thankfulness for the fact that Jesus Christ is the firstborn who was sacrificed for us. But I would also encourage us to apply this passage to how we read the Old Testament in its entirety. It's so easy to look at the law of God, the history of the rise and fall of judges and kings, the prophecies of destruction and restoration, and see it as a body of writings that were applicable to the Old Testament Jews, but not so applicable to us. A body of writings from which we need to pick out a few the few explicit prophecies of Jesus Christ, the story of creation, maybe, the model lives of the different Old Testament heroes of the faith, like David or Abraham, that we should try to emulate in how we live our lives. But let me encourage us to realize that the Old Testament, just as much as the New Testament, just as much is about Jesus Christ. Its pages scream out his name in the shadows of the law, the story of the people of God, the lyrics of the psalmist, and the proclamations of the prophets. It was by this Christ-dominated Old Testament that the Jews who believed it and its promises of a Messiah were saved by that faith. It is by our faith in the Messiah that is foretold in the Old Testament and set forth in the New Testament that we are saved. And that brings us to our second point, Simeon's sight. It was precisely this kind of Jew, one who knew the Old Testament and its Messiah-centered message by heart, and was earnestly believing in and waiting for its fulfillment that we find in verse 25. Luke introduces us to Simeon, a man of whom we know very little, apart from the fact that he was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon believed that God would send a Messiah to save his people. But he didn't just believe passively. He eagerly waited for it. He saw how great and vast the need for a Savior was in his life and in the lives of those who were around him. And he knew that this salvation was not something that he could control or bring about, unlike some other Jews who waged guerrilla warfare against the Romans in the hope that it would somehow summon the Messiah to their rescue. No, Simeon waited. He waited patiently. He waited faithfully. He desired this Messiah more than he desired life itself. Simeon's faith was no faith of outward forms and works righteousness. 
It was one of humility that looked to God alone for his salvation. Yet at the same time, in this passage, we see that Simeon was not some kind of superhuman. Someone who came to understand and embrace the truth through his superior spirituality or capacity for understanding. No, the text makes it very clear that Simeon's faith in and his desire for the promised Messiah came from outside of him, from the Holy Spirit. We see this in the end of verse 25 and in verse 26. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It was only through the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart and mind that his blind eyes and deaf ears, as ours also were once blind and deaf, were opened. And in verses 27 and 28, the same Holy Spirit is the one who enables him to recognize the Messiah for whom he had been waiting for so long. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. The Jews of the Old Testament, the other Jews of Jesus' time, the church of the New Testament, and us today, we are all no different. We cannot see our need for a Savior. We cannot desire a Savior. And we cannot know our Savior unless the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. He must open our blind eyes and our deaf ears, soften our hard hearts, enlighten our slow minds, and grant us the very faith with which we can hold on to Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Savior that we need, desire, and must know. With this Holy Spirit-granted faith, Simeon continues on in our passage to sing of praise and blessing. One where he makes clear that unlike most of his peers in Israel, he understood what kind of Messiah Jesus is and what he had come to do. In verses 29 through 32, Simeon says, Lord Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon saw Jesus for who he was, not for what Simeon's imagination made Jesus to be. He did not see a conquering king who would throw off the Roman yoke and lead the Jewish people to a renewed earthly kingdom. 
He didn't see in him just a good moral teacher who would help people to be nicer to one another and make the world a better place. No, he saw Jesus, the Savior, the one who would save his people from their sins. In Simeon's language, we can see the intentional echoes of the prophecy that we find in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 9 and 10. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Simeon's inclusion of the Gentiles is remarkable. Not because it is new to the New Testament, it's definitely not, but because so many of the Jews of Jesus' day had forgotten this promise of God. Their view of their responsibility as the people of God was limited to keeping the law not being an example to the nations. And their expectation of a Messiah was one who would reward them for their law-keeping and judge the nations for their lawlessness. But Simeon remembered that the reason God chose the Jewish people was to be a witness to the nations and that the Messiah would bring this mission to its fulfillment by bringing salvation to Jew and Gentile together, as it is written in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. What should we take away from Simeon's sight? I think it should cause us to ask ourselves the question, who do we think Jesus is? Do we understand him as he actually is? Do we understand what he came to do? What he did? And why he did it? Or do we have a small Jesus? One whose life and message is shrunk to fit in a box that is comfortable for us. That fits our inclinations. That makes us feel good about ourselves. Just like many of Simeon's peers If your idea of Jesus does not include, first and foremost, Jesus as your Savior, your desperately needed Savior, from your sin that destined you otherwise for eternal punishment, then it is very likely that you are leaning towards that second category 
of making a Jesus that fits your own fancies. Flee from it, I urge you, and accept and love and worship Jesus Christ as he is and as you actually need him to be. That brings us to our third and final point, Simeon's prophecy. In verses 34 and 35, we see Simeon turn from his song of praise and blessing to a foreboding prophecy. Luke writes, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As we have seen already, Simeon was not normal. Throughout the Old Testament, though we do see a constant small remnant of faithful Jews who believed in God and believed in his salvation that was promised, the large majority of people constantly rebel and go their own way. In Simeon's time, it was no different. Not every Jew was granted Simeon's spiritual sight. In fact, the eyes of most Jews were still blinded and their hearts still hardened. They were not looking for a Savior. And once he came, they did not recognize him. Why were the people blind? Because they were looking for a Messiah who fit their own imaginations and preconceptions. The Pharisees looked for a Messiah who would be summoned by their righteousness and law-keeping and who would return Israel to its former glory. The Zealots looked for a Messiah who would lead them to victory and domination over the Romans and the rest of the nations. They did not look for the type of Messiah that Jesus actually is. They didn't want a Messiah who would save them from their sins. They were already righteous. They already kept the law. They didn't want a Messiah who would bring salvation to the Gentiles. They wanted one who would destroy them and dominate over them. Jesus, as he actually was, not as they imagined he should be, was a stumbling block for them. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It is because of this that Simeon prophesies here that Jesus will cause some to rise and some to fall, and will be a sign that is opposed. Jesus saves his people, but the rejection of him by others will be their downfall. Jesus divides. He's always cutting people into two categories. 
those who follow him, those who do not, those who obey him, those who do not, those who believe in him and those who do not. And this has real ramifications for all of our lives. As Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is a hard saying. I imagine it's the same for most of you, but I've just spent the past couple of weeks with my close and extended family, enjoying the wonderful gift from God that they are. Yet Jesus says he will divide families and that those who love their families more than him are not worthy of him. How can Jesus be worth being divided from our very family members, our flesh and blood, who oppose him? How can we possibly love Jesus, someone whom we have never seen, more than our closest loved ones? Those for whom we would lay down our very lives. It's only possible when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and ears, soften our hearts, and makes us understand how hopeless we are without a Savior. Who our Savior is and how great of a Savior He is. It is only when we see this and realize it and understand it that any of this makes any sense. Does Jesus, the Savior from sin, the humble, suffering servant, the silent lamb, the firstborn sacrifice, cause you to stumble? Have you been content to view him simply as a good moral teacher or as the one who will come again someday to punish all the evildoers that are out there in the world? Are you content to come to church once a week but recoil when he calls you to trust in him and in him alone and to repent of the sins that you hold so dear? Are you content to respect and honor him but cannot imagine loving him more than your very family? If your answer is yes, then I beg of you, repent of that. Repent of your sin. Cast aside your reliance on yourself and on the things and the people of this world. Accept Jesus for who he is and cling to him as your only hope for salvation. For without him, 
there is no salvation and no hope. And with him, there is salvation for even the chief of sinners and hope even in the darkest hour. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we cannot praise you, we cannot thank you enough for the wonderful gift that is your Son, Jesus Christ. That while we were still sinners, still completely uh, estranged from you, still utterly deserving of the totality of your wrath throughout all eternity, you sent him to take on the form of man, to live the perfect life that we could not, to die in our place, to rise again on the third day, that, we, that our sins might be atoned for, that we might have his righteousness, be reconciled to you and look forward to a future where we will spend eternity in your presence. Lord, it is truly beyond our ability to comprehend this, this incredible, amazing grace, as John Newton said. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to take it for granted, that we would not twist it to fit our own preconceptions and our own desires, Lord, but that we would accept your Son as he is, that we would believe in him as he is, and that we would never take him for granted but live every moment of our lives in accordance with this glorious truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.